Visiting the James Webb Space Telescope, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome, I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. Have you been to the Grand Canyon? Did the pictures you'd seen of it come close to viewing the real thing? No, they didn't, did they? That's how it is with the James Webb Space Telescope. It's what I discovered a few days ago when I visited the Webb. You'll hear my conversations with two members of the team behind this telescope that will be 100 times as powerful as the Hubble. Bruce Betts will put the icing on this cake of science with a JWST random space fact that will have you buzzing. First up are these headlines from the July 2nd edition of The Downlink, our weekly newsletter, which is topped by the image that used to be on the back of my business card. It's our own pale blue dot seen by the Cassini orbiter in a picture that includes the rings of Saturn. Words cannot express its beauty or its profound impact. Our own Andrew Jones has shared video of China's Zerong rover descending to the Martian surface. You'll find it among these headlines at planetary.org downlink. NASA's NEOWISE has been given a two-year mission extension by NASA. The near-Earth object hunting spacecraft has already observed nearly 2,000 asteroids. We'll be talking with NEOWISE and NEO Surveyor Principal Investigator Amy Meinzer in a couple of weeks. And aviation legend Wally Funk will finally make it into space, nearly 60 years after NASA said no to her and 12 other women. She will ride with Jeff Bezos aboard his New Shepard suborbital capsule on July 20th. Godspeed, Wally. I grew up not far from what used to be the headquarters of TRW in Southern California. The sprawling campus is now a Northrop Grumman facility. One of the buildings hides a towering clean room. Inside that room, surrounded by Northrop and NASA technicians, it dwarfs, is one of the most wonderful machines ever created. After years of development, construction, and testing, and after billions in cost overruns, a magnificent space observatory is nearly ready for a trip to French Guiana. That's where it will leap into space atop an Ariane 5 rocket headed for Sun-Earth-Lagrangian Point 2, often simply called L2. If all goes well, it will spend many years at that spot of balanced gravity that is one and a half million kilometers from Earth. Scientists around the world trust that it will revolutionize our view of the universe in the way the Hubble Space Telescope started to do more than 31 years ago. Looking down on the clean room from an enclosed gallery near its ceiling, I see the bunny-suited techs swarm around the giant spacecraft. High above them and nearly at my eye level are 18 stunningly beautiful hexagonal mirrors, each coated with gold. In front of these and leaning outward is the folded sunscreen that will enable the web to examine at infrared wavelengths everything from planets circling nearby stars to our universe in its infancy. Custom rigs and frames support the telescope. Techs lying on their stomachs are inserted by forklifts deep into the guts of the great instrument. The narrow platforms they lie on look like what they're called, diving boards. With enthusiastic NASA and Northrop Grumman minders looking on, I welcome Bill Oakes, 
His service as the JWST project manager at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center is likely to be the climax of a decades-long aerospace career. We sit down on bar stools where we have a deeply distracting view of his observatory in front of us. Bill Oaks, welcome to Planetary Radio. I have seen you talking about this marvelous instrument that is right behind the glass outside our little uh, viewing balcony here for so many years, but it is an enormous pleasure to actually welcome you to Planetary Radio. Thank you. Thank you. appreciate it. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's quite amazing sitting here uh, looking at the telescope now. I started on the project ten and a half years ago, and we were still just getting the pieces in. So it's, uh, it's pretty exciting. That's when you became the uh, the project manager, right? Yep, in uh, December of 2010. You have seen so much happen with this this spacecraft because it is a spacecraft as well as being a telescope, of course. Right. Yeah. It's um, you know, we really refer to it as an observatory, where the spacecraft is the bottom part, uh, spacecraft element, and the top part being the telescope and the and the instruments. But, um, yeah, it's, it's been pretty amazing over the last, you know, like I said, ten and a half years just to watch it all start coming together, overcome the challenges and problems that we've had along the way, to get to this point where we have about seven weeks of touch labor here left at Northrop Grumman. Um, at that point, um, NASA will actually take ownership of it, and we do a little bit more risk reduction work here for the launch site, and then we put it into the shipping container. Man, I know that there has been talk lately, no fault of the web, but that the launch may be delayed somewhat. Are you still looking at the end of this year? Um, right now, it's still looking like end of November. Um, I think that came up at the press conference a few weeks ago with the European Space Agency with some of the issues that the rocket had. Their return to flight is still on for July 27th. Uh, there's two flights before us. So there's one July 27th. There's 60 days in between launches. So then you have another one at the end of September, and then we're uh, Thanksgiving weekend. It must be something of a relief to know that the Ariane rocket, that this will be packed away into the payload fair enough, it's a pretty reliable launcher. Yes, yeah, it's, it's one of the most reliable launchers out there. Um, I mean, they had some issues last year with the fairing, um, and they're working through those, and they're very, very transparent. Uh, to NASA as well as ESA. We have our friends from Kennedy Space Center uh, working with them also and working with us. So we're really working as one team so we understand what the problem was and how they're correcting it. So we have confidence that when we launch um, on the third flight of the of their, after their return, or the second flight after their return to flight, third, third flight after their return to flight, sorry, <laughs> that, that we have 100% confidence that we're, we're going to be fine. And we're going to talk a little bit later with your uh, colleague, uh, Begonia Villa, who has been involved with a lot of that testing, I'm told. Mm -hmm. To paraphrase the person who said, you know, how do you get to Carnegie Hall, I I guess I would say, how do you get to a Lagrange point? Practice, practice, practice. Practice, practice. yes. We practice. Test, test, test. (laughs) Rehearse, rehearse, rehearse. (laughs) (laughs) Any idea how big the team has been, how many people have contributed to this project? I mean, we're seeing some of them down there on the floor right now, largely North of Grumman uh, technicians, of course. Uh, but not just the number of people, but the variety of skills that have gone into creating this observatory. Okay. Well, a couple things. One, when you actually look on the floor, that is an integrated North of Grumman NASA team wow. out, that's out there. We are a fully integrated INT team, um, so you almost always see a, a, a mix out there. You may not know it, but there's always a mixture out there. Um, over the years, and you, if you go back, right, uh, 20 years to develop this mission, We've, we have taken a very rough guess at over 10,000 people have worked on it. 
it's not all engineers and it's not all scientists, right? We have our technicians, we have the machinists, you've got other support folks such as, you know, contracts folks, lawyers, they're all part of the, that team that all work together. So there's all different skill levels and talents that go into to constructing something like this. I, when I go out to uh, schools, and I, talk, I like talking to elementary school kids. Mm. So at some point back, when we get back kind of normal, you can do that again. I always tell them, if you're really interested in space, we tell everybody, right, math, science. I emphasize English because you better be able to communicate your ideas to folks. Um, but that's not the only thing you can do. If you, have, if you can't get, you know, not everybody's a mathematician. But there's lots of other things you can do, everything from a machinist to a graphic artist to uh, financial people and business folks. You have, I'm, I'm going to get people mad at me if I leave the, the different things <laughs> It's out. like the Academy Awards. But, but don't, almost, don't leave anybody out. Yeah, but it's I, almost any, any kind of job you can think of, you can probably tailor it to be working in the aerospace industry and working on a satellite. I got one for you, which was absolutely delightful when I made that earlier visit here Mm -hmm. to Northrop Grumman. Uh, At that time, there were seamstresses sewing the sunshield. Yeah, we don't use that term, but it is like that. Anytime you want to need, whether it's the the sunshield itself was manufactured by a company called Nexolve in Huntsville, Alabama. When when you look at the sunshield and it's deployed, it's, it's about the size of, we always say it's the size of a tennis court. It, each layer is made up of 50 individual pieces, and they are thermally stitched together. But going back to what you mentioned about people just sewing things together, there's a lot of thermal blanketing on this satellite, almost on any satellite, but especially on this satellite. And that is done in a shop where you literally are using sewing machines and such to stitch things together and piece together and cut things out to patterns. And, and that all goes into making, the, installing all of our, thermal insulation, and it's all different shapes and sizes. So, um, yeah, it's just another another example of the type of career you can have that still gets you involved with uh, aerospace. It has been, as we said, a, lo- a long, hard road, some bumps along the way, so close now. And this is a question I'll probably ask your colleagues who will be coming mm-hmm. in as well. What step in the deployment of this telescope is going to give you the greatest amount of relief once it's complete, once it's in place. Uh, lots of times I just tell folks, have you seen the video? <laughs> that should give you enough nightmares right there. But, but it is the, probably the most complex deployment is the SunShield. Um, it's got, let's see if I get these numbers, 1,300 feet of cable. has 107 different release devices. It's either, it's either four or 500 pulley assemblies. It is extraordinarily complex. And it, it, just watching when they deploy here in the clean room, you, you can get that sense because you also you have all this other, other ground support equipment to do zero-G offloading because, you know, we designed it to operate in a zero-G environment, not in a one-G environment, so you need to take that into account. Sure. So it is, it is a very complex deployment. That's probably the one you worry about the most. But we tell folks, you know, I think it was uh, – one of the Mars landers, they had the seven and a half minutes of terror. Yeah, I was going to bring that up. Yeah, we, we call it, our equivalent is two and a half weeks of high anxiety. <laughs> <laughs> you beat me to that comparison. Yesterday I told my five-year-old grandson that I'm going to be going to see the James Webb Space Telescope. And he said, because he's already a space geek, can I come? <laughs> yeah, that's pretty cool. My, my grandson's not quite two yet, so he doesn't quite grasp it. But uh, yeah, for little kids, I mean, it's going to be amazing. This is, this is the next generation's telescope. 
The five-year-old might actually get to work on the one after this. <laughs> but the, you know, the kids now that are middle school, high school, and college that want to go into astrophysics, this is what they want to work with. Where will you be uh, for the launch? Launch, I'll be in French Guiana. So I'll be on console down there. Um, I'll, I'll get down there a week, two weeks ahead of time because um, we, have, we have some reviews down there that we finish up. Uh, the day after launch, I'll then fly back up to Baltimore and head up to the Institute for our commissioning. It takes us about 30 days to get out to L2. During that 30-day time frame is when we do all our deployments. Once we do that, we start the wavefront sensing. We have to cool the telescope down, commission the instruments. It's, it is a f- jam-packed full six months of commissioning, but the end result is going to be spectacular. Thank you, Bill. Can't wait. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I can't wait either. Spanish-born Begonia Vila is a key instrument systems engineer for the James Webb Space Telescope. Like Bill Oakes, she was making another visit to the Webb from the Goddard Space Flight Center when she climbed the steps to the clean room gallery where I had also talked with Bill. Thank you very much for joining us here with this absolutely thrilling view in front of us. Now, this is new for me being in the presence. You still, after all these years, feel that excitement? Indeed. Thank you for having me. It's always an exciting moment. Uh, I have been with the project for quite a while. I remember delivering the flight instruments. That was exciting. Seeing them put together in the isomer structure, that was an awesome moment doing the cryo testing. Then seeing the mirrors, the mirror, each of the individual mirrors are assembled. Seeing that first picture that a lot of us at Goddard saw those mirrors open for the first time, super exciting. <laughs> and then coming here to Northrop, seeing the sun shield, the integration together, and now any, any phase is super exciting and it's always a wonderful moment when we get to, <laughs> to do what, what we are doing. This is as thrilling for me as when I've gone to JPL, put on the bunny suit, you stand in front of curiosity, you stand in front of perseverance. There's a bit of anxiousness as well, because until it's up there getting first light, so much still has to go just right, right? And and you've been a big part of making sure that it will go just right. Yes. Uh, as you know, it's going to be very far away, four times the distance of the moon. So we have had to do a lot of testing on the ground to make sure it will deploy and operate as expected. I think we are all feeling the excitement now because we are almost there. I think this week here we are finishing two of the most important electrical tests that we have to do. In fact, today I am here supporting one event where we induce a fault and we show that mm. everything saves and shuts down as, as it should. But anyway, we are very close to going to the French Guiana, doing the testing there, and then doing the launch will be exciting. But that's not the end of it. Of course, then we have about six months of commissioning. We have to deploy all the components, align those 18 mirrors. The first time we take a picture of a star on orbit, we'll see 18 stars. Each of the mirrors behaves as a mirror. Mm. So a lot of work with the actuators on the back to make it behave as a single mirror. And then we have to turn each of the instruments to the calibration. So I think it's going to be so exciting even after the launch during all that time until we say, we are ready. Here is James Webb go and use it. So very, very cool. Very much the same process that all 
big new telescopes have to go through. The big difference, of course, being this is going to happen in the vacuum and cold of space with no human hands on it. Correct, yes. Every, every time you launch something into space, uh, you follow certain processes. We all have to do it, right? You do some ambient functional to make sure things work. You have to do vibration and acoustics testing to make sure what you're launching survives kind of the worst part of the journey, which is that launch on the rocket where it will be shaken and hear these loud noises. But then you have to duplicate the conditions that instrument will see on orbit. In our case, an infrared telescope operating very cold, so that's why we had to do the testing in the cryo chamber at Goddard and the cryo chamber in Houston mm. to duplicate the vacuum and the coldness. This goes to 40 Kelvin, and that was a challenge in itself. A lot of uh, cold telescopes go to 80 Kelvin with nitrogen. To go to 40, you have to add helium, and that's a mm. more complicated process. And of course, every time you cool down this big instrument with so many components, you have to watch it very carefully that everything is cooling down as it should. So lots of work to do those tests, and it's something that will monitor on orbit as well. How does that cool down go and make sure everything behaves as we need it to, to get there? 40 degrees Kelvin, of course, 40 degrees on the Kelvin scale, much like centigrade, but, but we're talking about 40 degrees above absolute zero. Very, very cold and in vacuum during that testing. Did that testing give you the confidence that once this big spacecraft, because it is a spacecraft, yes. gets up there, it's going to do what we need it to do. Yes, you have very good points there. Vacuum, which is different on, on the ground, we have to do a special testing to simulate that vacuum. But then that coldness, it's so cold. We cannot build a telescope at those temperatures. We have to build them at ambient temperatures. And I think, as everybody knows, when you put something in the freezer, its properties change. So that's true for this telescope as well. The properties of the materials will change and things will shift little bit. So you have to make sure I build it at ambient knowing when it gets cold, it's going to go there and that's where it needs to be. So lots of team effort, modeling, and then demonstration and validation. Uh, those cryo tests were critical. The one at Goddard did all the instruments. Of course, you have to simulate the sky, we had to have the mm. stars, and mm. we had to simulate the sun shield, we didn't have it, and the mirrors, we didn't have them. <laughs> uh, and then the testing at Houston, a much bigger chamber that we needed because the mirrors are so big, and that allowed us to check everything a bit better together and also uh, validate the process we are going to use on orbit that we mentioned before of aligning those mirrors. We had a fake star and we could see how to do that process. So I think we have done as much as we can. We have done a very thorough test campaign on the James Webb to convince ourselves we are ready. We are ready when we launch it for it to behave as it should. I know that you also do a lot of STEM activities, outreach activities, um, in part relying on your fluency in both Spanish and English. And I just wonder how much a part of uh, a, a sort of your mission in life it is to, to share what you do and, and to share, you know, the thrill that we get looking out there. Uh, yes, I love doing STEM and outreach events. Uh, 
not only to share obviously games web i think it's a telescope for everybody and i think on any subject you know astrophysics um anything that we work on it's not a specialty i think everybody uh, can understand it everybody can get excited about it so i love having a little bit of a part in engaging everybody and not thinking oh i could not do that i could not understand that which is not correct so i i really enjoy it on both and it's different spanish and english i love both uh, it gives you a different uh, feeling and i i it's a great part of what i enjoy in my job thank you begonia it's been delightful talking with you and and best of success with uh this big telescope. Thank you. It has been my pleasure. Thank you for having me. NASA Goddard Instrument Systems Engineer Begonia Vila. I'm grateful to Begonia and Bill Oakes for taking time to talk with us. And I'm also grateful to Northrop Grumman and NASA Goddard for making my JWST visit possible. Our visit with Bruce Betts starts in a minute. This is Planetary Radio. Hey, Planetary Radio listeners, the Planetary Society now has an official online store. We've teamed up with Chop Shop, known for their space mission posters, to bring you space-inspired art and merchandise. You can find exclusive Planetary Society t-shirts, posters, and more. Visit planetly slash space shop to learn more. That's planet.ly forward slash space shop. Hi, I'm Jason Davis, Editorial Director for the Planetary Society. Did you know there are more than 20 planetary science missions exploring our solar system? That means a lot of news happens in any given week. Here's how to keep up with it all. The downlink is our new roundup of planetary exploration headlines. It connects you to the details when you want to dive deeper. From Mercury to interstellar space, we'll catch you up on what you might have missed. That's the downlink every Friday at planetary.org. It is time once again for What's Up on Planetary Radio. Here is the Chief Scientist of the Planetary Society. It's Dr. Bruce Betts. Welcome back. I, 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 <laughs> were, was that a seal impression? <laughs> uh, sea lion, technically, but uh, yeah, I just felt pinniped today. I don't know why. <laughs> well, you you may have trouble as a pinniped dealing with the gift that I got you, which I'm holding up to Bruce right what? now. We can see each other. I'm going to open up the bag that they oh, this uh, is very stapled shut at the North of Grumman uh, gift shop. The official JWST patch. Oh, <laughs> that's so cool. Thank you, Matt. Isn't it pretty? It is pretty. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'll get it to you someday. Okay. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. The Mars-Venus snuggle I've been promising for uh, weeks. It's happening July 12th, Mars and Venus low in the west, shortly after sunset. So in the, the dusky time, you will see super bright Venus. And over the days before and after July 12th, you'll see Mars moving from above Venus to below Venus, looking reddish more than 100 times dimmer than Venus. But uh, they'll be actually closer than the width of a full moon. Make sure you try to get a good view to the western horizon. For an easier target, coming up in the middle of the night, just about right in the middle of the night in the east, we've got really bright Jupiter with Saturn yellowish, kind of to its upper right, and they'll be up high in the south in the pre-dawn. 
Mercury, eh, it's tough. Mercury's going away, but you might still catch Mercury low in the pre-dawn east. That's, that's our sky. On to this week in space history. It's another uh, hard to believe for you, Matt. Ten years ago was the final launch of the space shuttle, STS-135 uh-huh. Atlantis. That is hard to believe because it was 10 and a half years ago that I tried to watch a shuttle launch and, and unsuccessfully. So I never did get to see one. Uh, you never got to see one? I'll, I'll see if I can do something and get it, another one scheduled. Would you? Thank you. I think it's worth it. I think there are probably <laughs> others out there, at least three or four of us, who never got to witness one. And yank them out of museums. It'll be great. <laughs> we'll just steal one. We'll steal one from, uh, I don't know, maybe L.A.'s... Uh, this is a plot of a great movie. We're going to need Nicolas Cage. And... <laughs> All right. I know someone who knows someone who knows Nicolas Cage, so I'm on it. I've seen movies with him in it. <laughs> My son does a fine impersonation of him, but I don't think that's relevant right now. What is relevant right now is that in 1979, two interesting things happened this week. Probably more than two, but I'm going to tell you about two. Voyager 2 did its Jupiter flyby before it headed off to three more planets. And Skylab re-entered in a fiery re-entry, spreading material across the Indian Ocean and a little bit into Australia. I remember that. Boy, that was a big deal, too. Yeah, Remember the uh, people selling T-shirts with targets on them? Yes. Yes, I do, as a matter of fact. Uh, (laughs) All right, we move on to the promised random spacefield. So according to NASA, and I, I believe him, but I haven't, I just say that because I, I haven't actually done the calculation myself, and it is so amazing. The James Webb Space Telescope will be so sensitive. How sensitive will it be? It will be so sensitive that it will be able to see the heat signature, the thermal signature of a bumblebee at the distance of the moon. <laughs> That's good. Okay, lunar bumblebees, your time is up. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's a good one. You're absolutely right. Let's go on to that contest. (laughs) So we hope there's no space apiary in the way. (laughs) I just wanted to use the word apiary. All right, we go on to the contest, and I ask you, which is the only one of the 88 official IAU constellations named for an actual historic person? How'd we do, Matt? You tell me how we did. What's the answer here? What were you looking for? Coma Berenices. Apologize, pronunciation's off. Its name means Berenice's hair in Latin. And she was the queen of Egypt. Queen Berenice II of Egypt counts as actual person. Rob Cohane in uh, Massachusetts. Longtime listener. He's been listening to the show, or at least entering the contest for at least five years. First time winner. So congratulations, Rob. We're going to send him uh, another copy of that terrific book, Carbon, One Adam's Odyssey, by John uh, Barnett that we've been talking about for uh, for a few weeks here. So um, enjoy that, Rob, and uh, see it paid off. This should be a good lesson to the rest of you who are still waiting for that first win. Take us to another contest. We're going to uh, start with something that uh, I'm guessing you discussed in the interview I haven't heard yet with, about James Webb, that it will be stationed at the Earth-Sun Lagrange Point 2, L2. Here's my question, though. 
What was the first spacecraft stationed at Earth-Sun L2? Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. So not just any L2, IL point, Lagrange point, but L2 specifically. And Earth-Sun L2, even more specific. Ah, Okay, I get it. Hope you get it too. You have until Wednesday, July 14th at 8 a.m. Pacific time to get it. Get it to us, that is. And uh, you might win yourself... Why not? A planetary radio t-shirt. That's it. We're done. All right, everybody. Go out there. Look up the night sky. Think about space bumblebees, but you can't hear them buzz. Thank you and good night. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) In space, no one can hear you. (laughs) He's, He's Bruce Betts, the chief scientist of the Planetary Society, who joins us every week here for What's Up? Bzzz. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California. Mark Hilverda and Jason Davis are associate producers. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. At Astro.